0: Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, and welcome back to A Freedom of Ideas. In the last few episodes, we've been talking about the relationship between traditional, classical conceptions of European modes of reasoning, imperialism, and most recently, the the impact that both of those wrapped up together have had on other styles of thinking outside of these European modes of rationality. Namely, uh, meaning what we've been discussing, how this, if you will, this collection of memes, this worldview, this European rational chauvinist worldview was spread across the globe through the process of imperialism. With Kahneman, as you'll recall a few episodes back, we saw how distorted and distorting those European notions of reason actually were. How different the idea of reasoning, the ideal of reasoning in the classical sense, is from the functioning of the human mind when we pay close attention to the actual mechanisms of the way we make decisions. For the past few episodes, we've been talking about the specific mechanisms by which imperialism, quote-unquote, changed the minds, to use our phrase, of people under the thumb of imperialism. We gave examples of this process as it was embodied in Indian boarding schools here in the United States and elsewhere, and in the in the longer processes of changes made to Indian language and law by the British in that imperial circumstance. Of course, as we said, both of these are examples of much, much larger and far more diverse systems of cruelties and genocide. So again, we we just can't make the mistake of uh, substituting a handful of examples for the totality of this hugely extensive and extensively brutal process. Now, today we're gonna pan back just a bit and talk more generally about the nature of this process of mind-changing, if you will, more on the philosophical level, the general level over and above any of these particular details. And the conclusion we'll come to through the course of this episode is that it it is this process of mind-changing in imperialism, whether in indigenous or settled communities, and by whatever means, either subtle or brutal, This process of mind changing was a process that altered the mind of the individual and the group primarily by changing the nature of civil society. So rather than imagining imperialists going sort of door-to-door, person-to-person, we can say their efforts to change minds occurred at what we would sort of inexactly call the source, quote-unquote, because as we'll see today, civil society and, and individual minds are are sort of inexact mirror images of one another. Inexact, and I should also say slow, because our nature as individuals is developed to a very large extent by how we define ourselves in, and in response to, civil society. By contrast, of course, civil society is defined by its members collectively. Not explicitly, of course. We don't don't get together and make a vote. We don't have a civil society planning meeting you know, subcommittees and bylaws and all the rest of it. But civil society is, nonetheless, as long as it is not interfered with, civil society is a reflection of the collective identity of the people within it. Now, of course, by contrast, it is in processes like imperialism that civil society is tampered with from the outside by some degree of force or coercion. Imperialism, in essence, will argue today, imperialism is a process of playing mad scientist with civil society, like splicing together limbs and pieces of different animals and making some kind of monster out of them, swapping out laws, swapping out languages, swapping out economic practices, swapping out uh, just the, the basic function of hierarchy within society, swapping out social norms and mores, now, in related news, and we'll talk about this just a tiny little bit uh, as a, in preparation for stuff we're going to get to way down the road. That's also what fascism, totalitarianism, and authoritarianism are. It's just that the swapping out uh, is done from the inside rather than from uh, external forces coming in and tampering with your civil society. But as I said, we're we're going to get to that. One last thing to be said before we dive into this line of reasoning. Both individual selfhood, meaning the nature of the individual mind, and the collective identity in a civil society, these are both hyper-complex systems. By which I mean, you know, well, take the, the individual selfhood example. So try to define yourself. I don't mean a catchphrase. I don't mean a thesis statement. I don't mean your job description. Tell me all and everything of who and what you are. Tell me what you're like, tell me what you like, tell me what makes you, you, to the point that I can accurately predict your response to most any situation, to the extent that maybe I could even recreate you if I had the right building blocks. Now, of course, you cannot do this, and it's not just because I'm sort of very rudely not letting you get a word in edgewise here. You are a hyper-complex mass of factors, uh, a mass of contradiction, a mass of Aspects that may or may not even be real, but that nonetheless matter very much when we try to talk about who and what you are. Now, civil society is surely the same way. It's not quite so individually quirky, but certainly it has its own. Every civil society has its own kind of character, its own sort of themes and styles and and trends. And all of those things are very difficult to define. Certainly they are impossible to define succinctly civil society is in fact the external reflection of the individual mind in most every respect. And this is no exception. And if you'll forgive me cleaving to a theme, the interaction between these two hyper complex systems is itself hyper complex. So every way in which we relate to and we are defined by and and in which we define civil society are that individual to civil society relationship, all of that is just as complex as you would imagine it would be when you're sort of smashing these two hyper-complex systems up against one another. So now that does seem fairly straightforward, right? So why go on about it? Well, consider what happens when you attempt to manipulate even a moderately complex system. Let's use the, the economy, for example. What happens when you attempt to manipulate this moderately complex system, an economy that you don't fully understand? Well, often as not, disaster happens, of course. At the very least, unexpected, unintended outcomes will most often occur. And we can add to our ever-growing list of analogies for imperialism, the image of someone trying to do, excuse this kind of gross imagery and I apologize, but the the image of someone trying to do neurosurgery with a sharpened stick. To imagine someone without any grasp of the complexity of what they're dealing with people without the requisite tools to manipulate that complexity, nonetheless, diving in and making sweeping changes with reckless abandon. That, I believe, is what we're gonna start to see emerging when we start to think more abstractly about this process of changing minds by changing civil society through imperialism. But I digress. To tell this story, let's begin, if we can, with intentions with motivations. Why, to wit, imperialists were running around the globe being imperialists, and more specifically, why they were running around the globe being imperialists who were just dead set on changing the way other people thought and lived and acted and spoke and all the rest of it. To begin by saying something that I assume must be obvious by now, there was clearly intent behind all of this process. Now, of course, there was intent behind imperialism. Of that, there you can't have the slightest doubt of that. But we can also say that the process of imperialism, specifically latter stages imperialism, imperialism was consciously understood, was intended to include the process of repatterning the way people thought, the way they thought about the world, and the way they thought about themselves. And this involved activities all along the spectrum, from as we've discussed genocide, to re-education, to uh, any number of other profound shifts in the civil society of the folks who were experiencing imperialism uh, and were living and interacting with it. This of course is what we've been discussing in the last three episodes, sort of in detail. Now, would an imperialist have said that they were trying to eradicate other modes of rationality and replace them with those fostered in Europe as as part of a process of replacing a variety of worldviews across the globe with a single European rational chauvinist worldview of the imperialist? Now, you know, maybe they wouldn't use those exact words. They wouldn't have phrased it exactly that way, but most, if not all of these folks certainly would have said That there were right and wrong, better and worse ways to live, better and worse ways to worship, better and worse ways to think, to own, to trade, and and conduct commerce, and on and on and on and on. And that the benefit of imperialism, this is again from the perspective of the imperialist, the benefit of imperialism to the people who had it imposed on them, ostensibly that benefit was being taught the better or best way to do all of those things that, of course, was embodied in the European rationally chauvinist worldview. Now, related to this, I, for one, when I was learning about imperialism, this was an idea that I was taught, this notion that this benefit of imperialism, that there was a benefit of imperialism sort of inherent in all this, in that it sort of enlightened the people who experienced imperialism to all these new and better ways of doing things and conducting government and being enlightened and being modern and all the rest of it. Now, of course, there was always a passing nod to the horrors of imperialism, although usually they were, uh, you know, massively understated when we were learning about these things. But especially when talking about places like India, there was this sense that At least for whatever bad things had happened, well, you know, at least there were benefits to the colonized people, right? In the form of being taught new and better ways to manage their affairs. And, and we had to consider that. We had to think about that and sort of put that in the balance. And I should say, as I'm, as I'm describing this as part of my educational experience, you know, I am more than old enough, but I'm not that old. So the fact that this sort of messaging was coming through my education means it's very much part of our current sort of cultural currency, if you will. Now, if we consider the reasons why folks might want a process like this to occur, meaning the motivations, again, of the colonizers, of the imperialists, let's take a moment here to try to imagine the perspective of a guy like Mill in all of this. Now, remember, Mill is, of course, More or less where all of this started from, right? This is why we started talking about imperialism in the midst of ostensibly talking about classical foundational, uh, European philosophers and their conception of freedom. Mill's conviction that if a people was not sufficiently mature, sufficiently rational, that it was acceptable, perhaps even it was expected that despotism should be applied to make them more mature and more rational you put it differently. If you'll recall, Mill contended that if you encounter a people whose minds don't work in a way that conforms to our standards, to Mill's standards, if they don't have the level of ostensible maturity of the European rational worldview, well, in that case, you're well within your rights to essentially forcefully change how they think. In fact, by doing so, you're doing them a favor. In fact, this is, you know, you're, you're actually doing a nice thing. This is a, this is a mitzvah. This is a good act that you're committing. And, and you just maybe try not to take it personally. If for some reason, the people you're doing all this nice stuff for, they just don't ever seem all that grateful for some reason. Who, who knows why they wouldn't, they wouldn't be happy to have you sort of come in and change the way they act and think at gunpoint, right? Now, in the interests of, you know, I don't to say not, not fairness, because I, I think we've We as a society spend more than enough time trying our very best to be fair to uh, old white men, right? But if not in fairness, uh, in the interest of perspective, let's remember what Mill and Locke and all the others in this intellectual, this European intellectual tradition saw when they looked back at their own history. They saw a Europe after the fall of Rome in political and economic disarray from course, 476 all the way up through the Middle Ages. They saw centuries of decline that were only held at bay and eventually turned around by despotic rulers. He references the enlightened despotism, if we can call it that, of Charlemagne. Now, to Mill's way of thinking, it was necessary to Europe for that European development of the capacity to be self-governing to have Stages of despotic government in the, in it's sort of that growing pains period. Stages of despotic government under folks like Charlemagne. Now you can argue with the telling of this history, right? And some people very much do say that, you know, the despots were just despots. They weren't actually doing anything all that beneficial to the European people. But the point is in this, that Mill and Locke and others amongst their peers, they most certainly believed this reading of history. And this is very much the traditional reading of history that, you know, is everyone from Gibbon and and all the rest of them. So when they looked at other societies, when the Mills and the Locks and everybody else of the world, when they looked at other societies and saw what in their rational chauvinism seemed not like differences between themselves and these other societies, but like deficiencies on the part of those other societies, well, it only made sense to apply that despotism from without, right, to to go to another country and be the external force applying that despotism. The same despotism that they believed would help those peoples, uh, the peoples who were subject to imperialism, progress in the same way that the Europeans had. Of course, at the very least in this, they were missing that key puzzle piece that usually it's despotism that comes from within, not without that you see in these kinds of progressions, if you even believe that those progressions are valid, but, you know, at a certain point, we need to stop quibbling the details with these guys because it's kind of a waste of time. The point is, this was the perspective they brought to bear on these questions. And we should also, again, in the moderate interest of fairness, consider Mill's actual day-to-day perspective on the process of imperialism. Now, as we've said, he's not merely an armchair philosopher when it comes to this. He was involved. He worked for the British East India Company, the economic arm of British imperial efforts. Mill was an active participant in imperialism, but he remained in the home country, never, to my knowledge, actually serving in India or any other imperial territory. So Mill is sitting back in his office, or maybe it was the equivalent of a cubicle, I I really don't know, but he's sitting back in England working for the British East India. Now, I honestly do not know what Mill did or did not know about what exactly was occurring in the colonies that the British East India was involved with. So it's an honest question. Did he see the brutality? How much of the brutality did he see? I would assume he could, almost certainly, he could not have seen all of it, or even anything close to all of it as very, very conscious steps were taken to isolate much of what happened in the colonies from what made it back to the the colonizing, back to the home country. We talked about how colonizers needed support from the home country, often in the form of military deployment. Therefore, the people and the government needed to support imperialism for the entire sort of imperialist structure to work. Thus it was much better to hide as much of the ugly truth as possible from the people and the politicians that you possibly can. But even if Mill is aware that there is certainly a very blatant kind of oppression at work, and again, probably without a lot of the horrific details, but at least he simply must know that that this process is not devoid of either violence or suffering. Even if he's aware of that, It is the fact that the process of imperialism is also spreading European rationality, spreading European quote-unquote maturity that for a guy like Mill redeems the entire adventure. This is what it means for Mill to invoke necessary despotism over a society in its known age. Despotism was, you know, despotism was never going to be entirely pleasant, right? And that despotism is justified for Mill precisely because that colonization of the mind, that changing of the mind, as we've called it, was in fact not just an additional cruelty, but again, to Mill's way of thinking, this was a real benefit that was being granted to people under whom, people who were under imperial rule. Now, whatever pain an indigenous people might need to suffer, at least now they had the gift of European civilization and European modes of reasoning gifted to them by the well-intentioned despotism of the imperialists. And they had this now to, to build on, to help them flourish. You know, I mean, however many of them were left alive after the process was complete, at least. But if that's Mill's sort of abstract, philosophical motivation, what could be the motivation for the actual folks out there traveling the globe and enacting this sort of adventure capitalism, why would they go to the trouble? Why would the actual people implementing imperialism go to the trouble to change minds? It's one thing for Mill to talk about necessary despotism, but it's a whole nother for the mass of people who actually have to implement imperialism to do that work, to take that time, because. Of course, I mean, not to get too far into the details here, but this is a pretty significant addition to the imperialist job description over and above the, the standard rape and murder and pillaging and economic disenfranchisement and all the rest of it. Why not just do what people have been doing all throughout history? Why not just take the money and run? Imperialism began with a hunger for power and wealth. So why complicate that simple formula with an attempt to change the way people think at the most basic level? Why dither around with the lengthy, time-consuming, and difficult task of colonizing the mind? What made it worth the time and trouble of the people implementing imperialism to do this? Again, to to answer this question, we we fundamentally need a a kind of bottom-line, profit-motive-style justification for These folks taking all the time and effort necessary to enact this changing of the mind. They're certainly not all so committed to this rationalist ideal as Mill that they're gonna actually be spending all this time if there's not some tangible benefit to them. The benefit, at least one benefit to the colonizer, is standardization. All of the business of society and government and commerce, All of that becomes easier if you and I fundamentally think in basically similar ways. It means I can assume a lot more and have to take the time to explain a lot less. It streamlines, in essence, the the entire process of imperialism and globalization for that matter, but that's a a whole other thing. It it, it streamlines all of these day-to-day interactions that the, these processes that the process of imperialism requires. Now, I mentioned globalization, so let's think of this like economics for a minute, which, of course, that's a huge piece of imperialism, but let's think of it only in terms of these economic systems, which means that for a moment, we're gonna set aside all the forcible coercion, all the violence, all the horrors of imperialism, or at least most of the horrors of imperialism. Again, just, just for a minute as we consider this idea. So reduce this all down to how do we exchange goods? How do we exchange services? Uh, how do we, even more basically, how do we exchange value between people? And here I'll say I'm taking a lot from Tyson Young-Caporta, who I, I know I've mentioned at various points throughout the course of this podcast. He's the host of the Other Others podcast, which is fantastic. He's the author of Sand Talk, which is also fantastic. And he is, uh, for our purposes here, he is a major and far too little cited influence and inspiration for everything that we're talking about here. But we're gonna hopefully be able to, to rectify that in the in the coming episodes, but I digress. So if I'm an international exchanger of value, and again, we're setting aside the violence, all the rest of that stuff, even though that's somewhat hypocritical, we're just gonna think about it in the, ab- this, in the abstract of economics. Say I'm in charge of buying and selling things internationally. If I run a chain restaurant, for example, and my goal is to put that chain restaurant in every community everywhere across the globe. If that's the case, I want every community to act as similarly as possible when it comes to the way they buy things. And when it comes to the way they expect to be compensated for their time and labor. If I enter a community that uses a process of exchanging services in kind, So for example, my neighbor helps me build my barn and rather than expect payment and without even really formally placing a monetary value on the transaction, we simply both understand that, you know, when the time comes, I'll be there to help him with his next project in in much the same way. And if this is more than just the occasional transaction, if this is a major driver in the way that a community's economy operates, so much so that my prospective employees, uh, you know, going back to my perspective here as the the international entrepreneur, if my prospective employees don't conform to sort of nice regularized processes of working X amount of time for Y amount of pay and and exchanging burgers and fries for well-defined and completely standardized sums of easily convertible currency, well, if that's not the way it works in this new community that I'm trying to build my burger shack in, all of that creates enormous complications for me, right? So if I want to have a retail empire that stretches across the globe, I don't want to have to adjust to a wide array of different local economic customs, never mind social and and ethical customs. It's a huge amount of work for me, right? And ultimately what it means is rather than running this single retail empire, I'm doing the much harder task of running hundreds or thousands of individual shops that operate basically in in very different ways as they attempt to adapt to all of these local economic norms. So when we take this purely economic example, and yes, that once again ignores, you know, for the time being, the instances in which even globalization and free enterprise ends up looking a lot more like militarized colonization than cooperative economic expansion, but you know. If we set that aside and take this unrealistically sterile example, we can see why it benefits any kind of, quote, global concerns, including, of course, that of the imperialist, why it benefits any kind of global concerns to want as much standardization as possible. In fact, we want standardization across as many aspects of civil society as possible, not just economics, but we want there to be similar laws, similar customs, similar social behaviors, similar authority structures. We want all of it to be as similar as possible because that makes our process of spreading our little empire, be it an imperialist empire or a burger joint empire, it makes that process as simple as possible for the internationalist in question. And now if I even need to say it, when we say there's going to be standardization here, the standardization is always toward the norms and accustomed practices of the colonizer, of the imperialist, of the international uh, burger shack owner, or whatever else we want to say. Because of course the colonizer, with whatever mix of racism and rational religious and cultural chauvinism that they bring to the table, of course they are of the opinion that they know the best way to do things. Really, that they know the best way to do everything. They know the best way to do language and law and commerce and what kind of dwellings you should use and what kind of religions you should practice and how you should think about gender roles and racial identity and so on and so on and so on. And therefore, their worldview, the worldview of the imperialist, becomes the standard by which colonized societies will operate. So now, again the reason to be talking about any of this is to give us some sense of why it would matter in colonial and imperialist movements that European notions of reason are, you know, are going to be actively spread across the globe. So with that somewhat answered and with that in mind, I want to transition now to thinking about the interplay between the mind of the individual and the makeup of that individual's overall civil society. Specifically, I want to start thinking about how civil society and mind define one another through that interplay and what it means when the normal relationship between individual mind and civil society is interrupted and interfered with as it is in imperialism. Imperialism where, to say the very least, it is no longer the individual minds of a given community that define much of civil society, but rather that civil society is essentially being hijacked and defined by an external force. Now, as a reminder, uh, for everything we've been talking about over the past three episodes, the the specifics of how this changing the mind occurred in various colonial societies, in, in the Indian boarding schools here in North America, in the Imperial English situation as they were manipulating language and law in, in India, All of those were presented as tangible examples of what we're now discussing in principle. So in essence, everything we discuss from here on out, it should align with those actual details. Again, on a principle level, should align with those actual details. We should see it sort of embodied in those details that we discussed over the past few weeks. In any event, to begin, I'd like you to imagine all of the ways that you interact with civil society, everything that you do beyond the immediate confines of your own mental life, and perhaps perhaps uh, everything you do beyond the bounds of your own family. Though this is kind of a murky area where so, some people have kind of described family as a, as a sort of civil society within a civil society, if you will, a, a microcosmic personal civil society, that operates kind of as a a smaller system within the larger civil society. But I, I, I sort of digress, I kind of think of it as a halfway point between civil society and purely thinking about the individual. But setting that aside, let's think of every kind of interaction that you have outside the doors of your own home, but also including all of what you do, you know, for example, on the internet and what you experience on television and and through the radio and other media, all commerce, all interactions with government and law enforcement, all experiences of public art, all the social aspects of of, of everything that you attend to in day-to-day life. Essentially, all of the human-built world outside of your own particular domain of personal and or family life. Everything in the public sphere, obviously, That all has a kind of character to it, a style, a flavor, almost like a personality. So for example, here in, in central Montana, the personality of civil society, of course, going to be a little different than it is in Times Square or Paris or what have you. Now, imagine if the way you interacted with all of those aspects of civil society suddenly changed significantly, if you bought and sold things differently if education occurred differently, if there were different rules for what the law will or will not allow, and on and on and on. We can surely imagine hundreds of nodes of interaction between ourselves and this amorphous and expansive entity that we're loosely labeling as civil society. Now, assuming you're an adult who's fairly set in their ways, if you had no choice but to act in different ways to conform to this society, you know, if for example, there was a threat of violence inherent in this process. So you either buy and sell goods in this new way that we're demanding, or we'll, we'll beat you, or imprison you, or we'll, we'll shoot you. Or even if you simply could not get anything done without changing how you act in civil society, you couldn't earn money, you couldn't buy groceries, you couldn't interact with the political structures, even the bureaucratic structures in your immediate area, unless you did it in different ways. Whatever the exact dynamics of this likely, at least to us, it's going to seem like a dystopian new reality that we're going to find ourselves in. At the very least, there will likely develop a split in your sense of selfhood. There'll be the one you, the quote unquote you who remains quote unquote yourself in the way that you always have been. Then there's going to be the other quote unquote you who goes out and survives and interacts in this new external civil society by compromising and by essentially changing the way you interact. Of course, there's already a public quote unquote, you there's a family quote unquote, you, and there's a private alone you, but presumably, even if we feel ourselves to be fairly antisocial, we don't feel that between those three different spheres are absolute core values, the principles of who we are between this, our, our, ourselves in, the, in public and ourselves in private, ourselves at work, ourselves with our families. We may feel these to be different, you know, we may come to these uh, interactions with a different style, but we presumably don't feel ourselves to be fundamentally different people at the most basic level. Now, presumably, if you feel this new, sort of personality that you have to take on in public is so anathema to who you actually are, to the real you. If there's such a difference there that you have to start creating this split between the quote unquote real you that you are in private or with your family and this public you that you now have to adopt, essentially just to survive in this new changed civil society, well, you might be able to keep that up for an entire lifetime, right? That this is, it's possible to do that. It's not comfortable, it's traumatic, it's, it's very damaging, but of course it is very possible. But surely, no matter how fervently you resist truly accepting those changes and beginning to reshape the quote unquote real you, your actual self and your behavior to reflect this new civil society, even if you, can resist making that change in yourself? What do we think is going to happen in the next generation? If you have a child being raised in this new system, in schools that conform to that new kind of civil society, learning these new interactions every time they're out in public, that child will invariably start to drift from the child that you're attempting to raise, the one that is well prepared to interact with that old version of civil society, the one that fostered the the quote-unquote real you? Do we honestly expect that a child raised from a very young age in that quote-unquote new civil society is going to be able to resist simply becoming a product of it in the way that you or I, we were a product of the old civil society, right? This is the natural process of these things that civil society plays a very strong role in creating who we are. So even if you can resist changing the quote-unquote real you to conform to this new civil society, you're kind of splitting yourself and play-acting when you're outside, can your child do that? Can their child do that? For how long can that resistance keep up before those fundamental changes to civil society become fundamental changes to who we as citizens are. For most people, I would think, and I think history bears this out, for most people, within a generation or two after this kind of significant change in civil society, the kind, the kind of significant change that we see caused by an institution like imperialism, significant changes to the individual simply are going to start to result from those changes in civil society given the way civil society creates, or at least helps to create individual people. Now, the exact nature of the changes, well, maybe that's harder to predict exactly what those changes are going to look like, how people are going to differ one or two or three generations after we institute something like imperialism. But that's a slightly different question. At least we know changes will occur. Now my point in talking about all of this is that the relationship between civil society and our own individual selves, our own individual worldview, it's largely symbiotic, right? Over time, one defines the other, which defines the first in turn in an ongoing cycle. So I'm raised in a civil society and that informs the kind of person I become and the collective nature of the kind of people that we all are in my society define what our civil society is all about, right? Now, of course, there's change in this process. There's good change, bad change, neutral change, but it's also typically organic change, akin to evolution and in response to factors that are natural to the system itself, not due to outside pressure and forces. So a society becomes wealthier, or it spends generations at war, or it has significant technological change. Those are all comparatively, quote unquote, natural means by which civil society will change, you know, likely more quickly than it would usually. And it's going to change in any event. That's the course of history, right? That's the basic nature of the fact that humanity is always shifting to some extent. When the system operates the way it should, as we've discussed, all of this happens organically. And no one particularly feels like they're being coerced by civil society. No one typically feels like there are sudden, kind of jarring changes that are occurring. Rather, individuals influence the civil society and they are influenced by it, in combination with all of the other people involved in this process. But when we look at a process like imperialism, of course we see it having the capacity to radically change civil societies in the places it it's influencing, in the places, should I say, is the places it's inflicted upon. Imperialism changes civil society, as we've said, like a mad scientist splicing together pieces of different animals. And and this is what we saw, right? In, in India, with the changes in uh, law and language by the English, this is what was happening in Indian boarding schools, was violently, brutally people's fundamental nature that was very explicitly trying to be changed by the schools. And of course, there are countless other factors that occur in all manner of imperialism, all of which are designed to pull and prod those levers of civil society so that by changing civil society, individuals themselves, individual minds are changed. Again, if not immediately, At the very least, inevitably, if the process sticks around for long enough, as with imperialism, it most certainly has in pretty much every place it ever took hold. So with all of these influences operating all at once, what you have is quite genuinely, a genuine colonization of the mind, a real move to change the way the world is perceived and understood, and the way information is exchanged and processed. So if civil society is the window into the individual mind that allows a process like imperialism to influence that mind, let's talk a little bit more about exactly what civil society is. At the risk of being overly glib with what is truly a very nuanced concept, many philosophers would describe civil society as, in essence, the externalization of the structures of the individual mind to create a space in which the individual mind can operate the way that, fundamentally the way that it should, with freedom and using language and with structure and with you know law if we, if we go that far, with a degree of order, with commerce perhaps, with education, with religion, with all the rest of it. Think of it as if the lungs, the the lungs in our body, our our lungs, knowing that they needed a certain kind of atmosphere in which to thrive. Think of it as if lungs could sort of collaborate. So you'll get 50 people together and all of our lungs would sort of collaborate in a certain way to create the atmosphere in which those lungs could then continue to survive and thrive. Now, again, I certainly understand that this is not in any way the way lungs actually work, but this is fundamentally how the mind, how numerous individual minds working together create something like civil society. The mind fundamentally to operate the way that it quote unquote should, and this is not to say that there is some one basic structure for how the mind should operate obviously, but for the human mind to, fundamentally capitalize on its potential, if you will, to operate the way that again, it, it quote unquote should, it needs certain kinds of externalized structures that mirror its internal operations. It needs language, it needs social structures, it needs rules to dictate those social structures, all that kind of stuff. Again, these needn't be specific kinds, it needn't be one specific kind of language. It needn't be one specific kind of social structure. It just needs to have something like these entities in place for it to be able to thrive, particularly as it's operating in tandem with numerous other minds in a society. So all of the pieces of mind that constitute our individual worldview and all the ways that we interact with the world, in essence, the way we look at civil society, we will see something like the mere image of ourselves in that civil society, a mere image between the fundamental aspects of our own mind and the aspects of civil society around us. Now, with all of this, I'm very much jumping the gun. I should be waiting to talk about this until after we have a chance to talk about Hegel, but Hegel's going to be a lot if if we even get to him anytime soon, And, and we really need to talk about this now, so forgive me kind of doing a a very glib and kind of silly crash course on the nature of civil society. Imagine a society of a thousand people. For simplicity's sake, we're going to say all these people are basically fairly similar. It's a homogeneous society with, you know, differences, of course, not a thousand people that are replicas of one another, but these are a thousand people that fundamentally recognize their basic similarities, their communal kinship, if you will. The civil society that exists for those thousand people is essentially going to be an externalization, a mere image of their collective minds, their collective standards, values, all the rest of it. In a sense, the civil society fostered by those thousand people, left to their own devices, will be an externalization of their own worldview, which will in turn serve to inculcate future generations into that worldview by education, by a social interaction, by a religion, by a law. All of those aspects of civil society mold its members, with the help of the family, to be part of that civil society. And of course, that civil society will change and grow with the individuals that constitute it, but this process will again, in most cases, be slow, organic, and to the people experiencing it, it will be barely susceptible, give or take the occasional, you know, uh, old guy on the porch saying, boy, kids are so different these days, you know, they have it so good, they don't know what it was like when when I was growing up, that kind of thing. But this is more or less how this is supposed to work, that this process of change occurs organically, slowly, and in a way that we can look at it and see it has a certain cohesiveness to it, right? And more importantly, the reasons that the changes are occurring are all all truly endemic to the society itself. It's not due to some huge influence coming from without, it's all due to the realities of what's happening within the society itself. So for each aspect of civil society, again, economy, law, education, government, religion, the social sphere of the community, all those things, art, for all of these aspects, we imagine that every given individual within that civil society, has a limited but still fairly diverse range of options for how they can craft their own personal identity to fit within the range of options that civil society allows. The process, again, is not going to produce a thousand of the exact same people, a thousand replicants. It's going to produce a thousand people who have considerable similarities, though perhaps similarities that don't seem to them you know, as striking as their diversity, as striking as their differences. So in relation to law, for example, as an aspect of civil society, I can define myself as a a 'er ne'er-do-well, or as an enforcer, or as just a comparatively passive participant. In terms of economy, I might be comparatively wealthy or I might be living hand to mouth. But if I live in our current civil society with the type of economy now used in most countries, it's very unlikely that I'm gonna live completely in, hunter, in a sort of hunter-gatherer mode, right? There's a wide degree of variability in terms of how we can relate to the present economy, but that idea, being a hunter-gatherer in you know, tw- 21st century America, it's simply not one of the options that our current civil society allows for, at least in most cases. Now, sure, there are going to be outliers. It's, it's not impossible to be a hunter-gatherer in 21st century America. But it's not the direction that the carrots and sticks of my upbringing and my day-to-day life in society are gonna tend to encourage me toward, right? And even the differences are are really variations on a certain kind of sameness. So a settler 'er ne'er-do-well and a settler law-abider will have a core sameness, a core similarity that they will not share with someone from an indigenous society, for example. So with all of that, in the hopes that I've struck the right balance between being clear and and not being tedious, you know, the the, the sort of tightrope that we're forever walking around here, with hopes that this is all clear enough, let's now imagine what would happen if we could play with this society of a thousand people as if it were a simulation. Simul society, something like that. If I had the power to turn a largely agrarian society into one that was industrialized, or if I could turn a society that viewed justice as a community matter to be handled by a collection of peers into one that largely ran through a military or a police hierarchy of set and codified laws, or if I just took a a community and I, I ripped out its religious practices and I replaced it with entirely different ones, or if I changed education, or if I distanced people from their own history, imagine the impact of the individuals in our little simil society, our thousand person society here, when these massive changes start taking place. And of course, again, the effect of these changes differs drastically between the first years these changes have been implemented and the second or third generations following these changes. Growing up in this different society will tend to mold people to it. The fact that the society is the only one they've ever known versus, you know, seeing something very different, seeing that change happen in civil society in your lifetime, that's gonna create very different effects in someone, right? If I'm raised within this different society versus if I experience that change directly. So given sufficient time, even if it only occurs after generations, the power to tamper with these elements of civil society, again, the externalized, Collective worldview of the community, the power to tamper with those elements of civil society is for all intents and purposes the power to tamper with the identity of the individuals in that community. So, as we start to wrap this up for today, we have imperialists, just as a kind of recap here, we have imperialists changing civil society as a means of fundamentally changing worldviews, changing the minds of the people they have colonized. Now, with that kind of in place, and I think we've made our point there, let me just throw out a handful of observations that, for today, we're just going to kind of empty these out like puzzle pieces on the table, but which we will certainly be coming back to over the course of the next, you know, however many episodes. The first observation is that both civil society and worldviews meaning an individual's worldview, or even the collective worldview of a group of people. Trying to describe either a, a, a civil society, the character of a civil society, or the character of an individual worldview means we end up really only being able to describe the, the tip of the iceberg fairly well. So for example, you know, we're describing aspects of a civil society or of an individual personality or worldview that are fairly explicit, fairly obvious. But even after we've done that, there remain a much larger group of tacit assumptions: intellectual instincts, emotions, aspects of history, many other kinds of features and factors that are practically impossible to describe with any kind of comprehensive precision. Think of it like the human genome, but, you know, of course it's the human meme memenome, meme-gnome, whatever. I, I don't know. The point is, it's unimaginably complex unimaginably intricate. And, you know, I could certainly be wrong about this, but when we think about the human genome versus the human meme gnome, the collection of all the the memes and, you know, elements of mind that make us who we are, I would think it's entirely possible that it's actually the meme gnome, the, the, the elements of mind that are gonna be far more potentially complex than the genome. Certainly, they're gonna be much harder to define with absolute precision in a way that we can really comprehensively understand them. In any event, we can certainly accept the fairly simple fact that trying to understand every aspect of a single person's experiences, their ideas, their beliefs, or, you know, never mind, a group of people's experiences, ideas, and beliefs, how all of that coalesces into the external reality of a given worldview or a given civil society, all of that is going to be hyper-complex, hugely difficult to, or not even difficult, I would say impossible to fully understand, to comprehensively understand or precisely describe, right? Well, we just got done, right? We just got done concluding that a significant aspect of imperialism was Europeans going into cultures and societies that they certainly did not understand, and seeking to change many of the aspects of civil society that, again, they certainly could not possibly have understood, not comprehensively, not really even that well on a kind of surface simple level. Further, they certainly had little or no clear knowledge about how civil society and the peoples they encountered interacted with one another, how that that symbiotic relationship of individual mind to overall civil society. They, they didn't know how that worked either. So there was this hugely complex system, actually multiple hugely complex systems. There's individual mind, there's civil society, and there's the way they interact. And these people, the imperialists, had almost no concept of the mechanism at work in those two hyper complex systems and the hyper complex interaction between them. And yet what did they do? They set about the process of trying to manipulate them, right? So what that means then is that the colonizers were attempting to replace a hypercomplex set of practices. Again, the civil society of a subject people. And that hypercomplex system in turn came about due to a hypercomplex interaction with individuals and peoples as a whole and their hypercomplex individual and collective worldviews. They were attempting to reconfigure a hyper-complex machine that they could not possibly have understood more than the smallest possible fraction of. And what were they trying to do with that hyper-complex system, that hyper-complex machine? They were trying to replace it with their own hyper-complex machine, right? Their own civil society, their own worldview, which they also did not fully understand because, as we've said, We can't possibly fully understand these things. It's not within the human mind's capacity to fully understand these things on the level that they become manipulable, uh, susceptible of manipulation as a machine or as as a much more simple system might be. So if we carry this analogy further, to, you know, carry it to the point of absolute absurdity, because why not, right? Once we've started, why sulk at the margins, right? Imagine if you took a, a CRISPR machine, right? And you know what that is, right? That, that's the process by which we're now actually able to go in and edit a sequence of genes. So imagine if we took a, the CRISPR technology back and put it in the hands of a medieval doctor, someone who believed that depression, for example, was caused by an excess of black bile. So if you put that CRISPR technology into the hands of someone with that little insight into what they were manipulating, I think the outcomes of a medieval European doctor using CRISPR would be roughly as predictable and scientific and probably roughly as healthy and advisable as what happens when you take a people who cannot fully understand their own worldview or civil society and tell them to take that civil society and use it to replace someone else's civil society, civil society that they understood far less than they understood their own, which they already did not understand well at all in hopes of, in turn, creating major changes to their worldview. I think the process will be roughly as precise as the one that we imagine, uh, you know, taking place with our poor, hapless medieval doctor, right? And I think we can imagine from that uh, sort of silly analogy there, that there are going to be all kinds of impacts, all kinds of unintended consequences that happen next in this process, right? But unfortunately for today, that's where we're going to have to leave it. Another idea that I want to throw out there and put in front of us, it's overly glib, but I don't think an inaccurate description of how you turn your own society from one that is moderately free to one that trends towards fascism or totalitarianism or authoritarianism or however else you want to say it. And yes, I I certainly know there are differences, but for now let's just think of the sort of mass of truly horrible and misguided ways to run our own society. If we wanna go from a passably democratic to a mostly fascist society, what we need to do, if we want to do that, what we need to do is to start manipulating aspects of civil society in just the same way that we see the imperialists manipulating aspects of the civil society within their imperial territories. So again, this process, you start to manipulate civil society in such a way that will eventually begin to turn around and affect the worldviews of the people over whom you rule. Meaning again, you do to your own society exactly what imperialism was doing to someone else's. Now again, you know, Our little guidebook for how you want to turn a democratic, uh, a passably free country into a mostly fascist country. This is a pretty uh, glib summation of that, but fundamentally it is the same mechanism at work. It just so happens that it's people within the society doing the manipulating versus people from outside the society doing the manipulating. So again, that's a sort of massively oversimplistic summation, but it's worth noting, I think, that Hannah Arendt's trilogy on totalitarianism showed a steady progress of bad ideas evolving from antisemitism and racism, through imperialism, and finally culminating in various forms of would-be totalitarianism. Now, we we don't need to, and actually we can't delve into that at any length right now, but suffice to say, that the mechanisms at work here, the mechanisms of change, what imperialists were doing in occupied territories is basically the same type of activity that a would-be fascist movement would use to change their own society from the inside. It's a blunt extension of what we heard in Cone, learning lessons in imperial territories that get taken back and applied in the home country. Also, if we wanna add yet another little thought into our our, uh, puzzle pieces that we're dropping out into the table here, this is as good a time as any to remind us how we started all of this inquiry way back when. If you recall, we started by thinking about how we value or devalue the rational perspective of others, other people in our own society, and what impact that had on the way we treated folks within that society. The mechanism at work when we divest a person or a group of people within our society of their rational perspective, of the presumption that they possess and control a degree of reason, and thus the perception of their perspective as valuable, defensible, and meaningful. That, again, is the same basic mechanism that we're talking about when we look at the way imperialists treat native or indigenous people. They are coming in, redefining civil society in such a way that what used to be workable, productive, healthy means of of going about our day-to-day in society are suddenly we're being told no longer work. They are no longer rational. They're no longer workable. Finally, one last puzzle piece that I want to empty out here onto the table for our future consideration amidst all the other impacts and effects and changes that we're seeing as a consequence of this forcible spread of what I've been calling the European rational chauvinist worldview, the forcible spread of that European worldview via imperialism. One of the the, the sort of effects about this that we maybe don't think about nearly enough is that this very, this one very particular way of thinking about and understanding the world went from occupying a really relatively small portion of the globe to existing or often predominating in nearly every corner of the globe. You know, that is, if we can avoid overthinking the notion of, uh, you know, globes having corners. Well, we've used an analogy a bit, and we're going to continue to use it going forward, kind of comparing the spread of this European rational chauvinist worldview to the spread of something like a a noxious weed. So, say one particular given species of plant suddenly completely begins to dominate an ecosystem, right, such that it's everywhere, it's spreading very quickly, it's soaking up all the resources. It's taking up all the space. It's soaking up all the sunlight. And of course it's beginning to destroy what was once a balanced ecosystem and kind of coming to simply predominate that ecosystem and not really letting anything else other than that species itself thrive and exist, right? Well, if we push that analogy just a little bit further, what typically happens to a noxious species under that situation? Well, sure, they have a great run for a little while, right? They spread and they spread and they they destroy everything else and they take over everything. But by taking over everything, they fundamentally damage the ecosystem itself. And by fundamentally damaging the ecosystem, they damage essentially the platform on which they are trying to survive, which means that they end up doing quite a bit of damage to themselves as well by having destroyed the ecosystem that Even as they were destroying it, they were also depending on. So how do we fit that analogy? Our little, and I should say totally logically, you know, this is not a rigorous logical argument I'm making here. This is a, this is a speculative kind of fanciful way that I want us to think about this, but I do think there's something we can kind of learn from, from this way of thinking. So if we go back in our analogy from thinking about our noxious plant, our noxious weed spreading so quickly across an ecosystem and think instead about the European rational chauvinist worldview, which also spread very quickly and with, as we've been talking about all this time while doing great damage to other organisms, other ways of thinking, other worldviews and ultimately to the intellectual ecosystem itself. Well, if we think about it that way, does that help us begin to understand, if you will, the, shall we say the, the the sort of current state of rationality in the world today? So to, to put it somewhat glibly to, to, to put it differently, if we ask ourselves why, if this European reason has been, you know, if you believe my thesis here, that this has been spread across the globe so aggressively then why is it that the actual use of reason of any sort seems so increasingly rare? Well, maybe the damage we've done to the, if you will, the intellectual ecosystem is finally coming back to reflect damage on this particular worldview that spread so quickly, spread so noxiously, and spread with such destructiveness to so many other, quote unquote, again, to use the analogy, organisms within this system. But with that somewhat clumsy analogy, uh, uh, you know, on the table here, that's where we're going to leave it for today, I'm afraid, but you know, last thing, as we typically do, let's close it out with some questions. First, I made a very broad equivalency between the mechanisms of imposing fascism or any other kind of totalitarianism or authoritarianism on one's own country or civil society and the kinds of changes imposed upon a civil society that occur through the process of imperialism. So I want to hear from you. How do you respond to that equivalency? Does that make sense to you? Does that resonate with you? Do you agree that there are, in fact, similar, maybe not identical, but similar mechanisms at work in these two processes? How do you think it changes things that presumably the imposers of fascism and authoritarianism, those are going to be primarily homegrown folks. Whereas with imperialism, by definition, that's always someone coming from the outside of a society. How does that change the way we look at these two respective transformations? Second, since this process of tampering with civil society is by definition entirely inexact, you know, you remember our whole analogy of the the CRISPR machine and how sort of clumsy this attempt to manipulate something as complex as civil society must be. Well, in that case, what do you think some of the unintended consequences likely are? You know, for example, we heard in Bernard Cohn in the last couple episodes, we heard him say that much of what the English did in India to change language and law was actually unintended, or at least that they intended it to sort of happen in a very different way. What else might have happened in those processes that none of them likely ever planned for or intended, or that, you know, perhaps we haven't yet even fully understood to this day, but enough with the questions at the end of a very long episode here, as always, thank you again for your time. I look forward to your thoughts and I'll be speaking with you next time. I'm looking forward to it.